This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome all our online world, the virtual world, the, the people that we never, never see. You know, it's interesting that when you're dealing with a virtual relationship, let's call it, I don't know, like, it's very interesting because, like, there are people that connect with the speaker, but the speaker has no clue you know, who the virtual world is, because there's no, you know, in, you know, connection there. So sometimes, especially if you put a lot of personal information online, they'll be like, I know you really well, you know, and then, you know, but it's funny, because it's like a one-way, one-way type of, uh, you know, information. Interesting, uh, you know, thought that popped into my mind. Okay. Always with woman with medication. It applies to every situation in all cases. Um, the, no one got that. Okay, so, um, Regarding next week, next week there might not be a class. Just stay tuned. Uh, you know, if there will be a class, if there not be a class, it's going to be a holiday. Uh, but the two weeks before the time will definitely be back on schedule. So tonight we're going to discuss. We're we're almost finishing up our uh, divinity series. Uh, I don't know if it's sad or Baruch Hashem. Actually, Baruch Hashem that we, you know we're we're coming to a close on this. What I want to finish off with, you know, this this uh, you know very long series that we're dealing with. Are questions that people have against Judaism, against the Bible, uh, you know, things against the Torah, uh, where people, you know, sort of find difficulties in understanding based on, let's say, science and medicine and current, you know, you know, evidence that we have now. So that's the topic that's going to be today. This is going to be a two-part class. So today we're going to speak about one. The next class we'll speak about, you know, different, uh, uh, different ideas, but the same, uh, you know, the, the same, the same concept. Okay, so to, to get like an introduction, there are certain people that go and they have questions. How do you prove that there's a God? How do you uh, prove that the Torah is legit? Those are fine and legitimate and great questions, and they're very easily provable. These, these things are not difficult. We went through 25 classes, you know, basically doing practically that. Uh, but, but even for the, for the common person with common sense, it's, it's fairly easy to, to go and explain it. Then there are certain people that they're learning, let's say, the Chumash, and they don't understand something. It doesn't make sense to them. And they have questions. Those are also very easy to understand. Those are also very easy to explain to them. Then there are certain people that they look in the Torah to find issues. Like they're coming in with an agenda. Okay, let's see what's the problems that we could find, you know, in here. Uh, and by the way, this doesn't only go for the Torah. This goes for everything. It's crazy. There are certain people, let's say in the dating world, right? There are certain people that start dating knowing already that it's not going to happen. They're like, they already have preconceived notions of what's going to happen. And they already made up their mind before they even know the person, mentioned the person, or heard anything about the person. Because it's just something that goes on in the person's mind that they sort of lean to a certain side and they just stick to that. Now, these people that they go into the Torah, and they look into the Torah just to find problems. You know, it's difficult to answer them, but it's very easy to answer them. It's very easy to answer them because the questions that they ask are very easily answerable because all questions in the Torah that people don't understand are, majority of them are very, very easily uh, answered. The problem is, is that when the person doesn't want to hear the answer, they're not interested in the answer. They just want the question. So when you have just a question, that actually comes, uh, you know, a little bit problematic. There are certain websites that, you know, uh, people think I don't know about these websites because I get questions that are asked to me all the time about, like, proving the Torah. And I'm like, I, you could switch, like, one or two words. You know, like, you know, like, you know what plagiarism is? 
Like, I know where you got these questions from. You know, like, it, all of a sudden you're a genius. You never heard about God. And a week later, you're quoting me three Gemaras, you know, from, like, different things. And be like, well, if it says something over here, be like, wow, you learned the Shas in one day. That's amazing, you know? Like, uh, so uh, it's very interesting that people go, and they go, they go online, and they type in, you know, all the questions against the Bible. And they go and they follow it up and be like, yes, it's a good question. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to go and find problems with the Torah and then answer because that could strengthen your faith. Because then you go and you, and you find the questions, and if you actually do research, you'll see that they're all very easily answered, so it'll strengthen your faith. The problem that I have with this is twofold. Number one is the people on these websites. There's one particular website that should not be named. It, there was a, um, a rabbi that I wrote. This website basically went, it was a rabbi, it was a person, not a rabbi, that learned a lot in yeshiva, and then he went off the dough. He went, he became not religious. And he used all his knowledge in yeshiva to go and try to prove that the Torah is wrong. And he brought different sources from different things. Sounds very, very, like a big tummy tacham, the way that he brings all his sources down. And he shows, look, the Torah has is, is got to be, something's wrong over here. Something, something is problematic over here. So I read a rabbi's response to that, that he sent this person a bunch of responses. So a person has like a bunch of questions against the Torah. So this doesn't make sense, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't make sense. The rabbi answered all of them. But yet none of those answers appear on the website. So which means is that this person is not searching for the truth. He's not like, well, listen, I had some questions and I was yeshiva. The, the, it goes beforehand. He already wanted to leave yeshiva. He didn't want to be religious. And then the questions came about. This is the same idea that we spoke about before called cognitive dissonance. When you're doing something bad, you don't like to feel that it's bad. So you try to convince that it's not bad. And how do you convince that it's not bad? Very simple. If the Torah is not true, if God doesn't exist, if it, whatever the rabbi said is all made up, then I can do whatever I want and I don't have to feel bad about it. So that's not mean that you're searching for the truth. That only means what you're doing is, is you're looking for excuses. That is very difficult to answer. Because even if you answer that person, they'll be like, but what if? I had these, I've had these conversations all the time. And it's, I, I can't say that it's stressful as much as it's annoying. Because they'll ask you like, what's one plus one? Two. But what if one plus one is not two? I'm like, what if you're on medication? I'm like, I don't want you, I'm like, because like, you know how like when you're getting in a certain situation, you're like, you know, it's sort of like if you've been in that situation like a thousand times before, you're like, you go to a thousand percent. I'm like, oh no, this again. I'm like, I can't, you know, like, and they go again. They're not asking a question. They're not looking for the answers. They're looking for their pro. They are looking for their excuses out. How do you answer somebody that is, has an excuse? And in fact, there was once a rabbi, a very big rabbi, that one of his students went off the dalach, would not become religious, and went over. After many years, he went and he started. He asked the rabbi a list of questions. And the rabbi said, yeah, it's a great question. It's very, very good questions. So the student said, but uh, you know, are you going to answer them? And he says, no, they, these, are, these are great questions. So the, the student says, I don't understand, rabbi. He says, you have an answer for everything. Like, how come you're not answering me? The rabbi says, very simply, you're not looking for answers. You're looking for questions. I, I can't answer. You're, what you're doing is you're just trying to find excuses. Even whatever I'll answer you, it's not going to be good enough. Now, that's what the rabbi, that's what the rabbi you know, said. This is going back uh, two or three generations ago. However, there was something very interesting that I found. So I came across these types of individuals um, that, you know, they come, and it's very obvious that they're looking for excuses. So I thought also, okay, what, why am I wasting time? But I decided, you know what, let's be courteous. You know, they're coming here, they're asking, let me go on, let me, you know, let me uh, answer their question. And I answered their question, and something very shocking happened. That people that I thought were looking only for excuses shocked me and turned out, no, they actually, a few years later, they became religious. Now, it might not have been because of my answers, it might not be something else, but one thing I did learn from this, that if someone comes to you asking for help, even if they're coming from the wrong intentions, still help them. Because you never know what's going to come out. There, there are certain people, I had a guy who used to come to my classes, 
always would just make problems with like asking like ridiculous questions. Um, I, I could, I'm not going to call it make problems, but like it was no matter whatever I told him, it wouldn't suffice. And you know, everybody kept on you know like the people in the class kept on saying like why you know why is he still kept on coming here? Like why do you let him come in? I'm like you never know what's going to happen. Like two years go by. And it turns out that I hear that this guy is learning every day and he's keeping Shabbat. This is a guy that no matter what you told him, always refuted everything. The answer is, the really answer is, is that that's not why people have a question. People are, most people are not like very intellectual. Be like, yes, I just read the whole book. I read the Torah. Yeah, you know, it was a good book. You know, I read all the sequels afterwards. You know, you know, they're, they're all great. Five stars, two thumbs up. Everything is amazing. Um, but I have some problems with it. You know, and then because once the problems came out, all of a sudden it became 100% religious. The, the idea behind it, this is not across the board, this is my own, like, you know, look at things. A lot of things are emotional. They're not only intellectual. A lot of things are emotional. People come with an emotional disadvantage to the beginning. They have a reason why they don't want to believe. They have, it's hard. I mean, you gotta change your life. All of a sudden, you know, let's say, let's say as a woman. So, a woman has a very big change. If she's coming from not religious to religious, that's a huge change. She has to go from not weird dressing modestly to all of a sudden dressing. That's a big change. There was a there's a um, my nephew from Israel sent me uh, sent me this this link of this article that this in Pennsylvania some sort of like Amish group of Christians um, and it was like related to Amish. They went and they converted to Judaism. They moved to Israel, made an aliyah, and they became and they became 100 Orthodox Jews. And what they were saying was very interesting. The dress code doesn't change because they, you know, they dressed like in the 1800s. You know, the word, I don't know what they call that, the turbans and the, you know, fluff, whatever. I, I have no idea any of these, you know, vernaculars. But they, they dressed completely like that. that. That didn't change. But you're coming from the modern woman. Going to a, that's a lot of change to take place. Be like, I don't know. I have reasons not to want to believe it. So, when people have these types of questions, when people have questions against the Torah, people have questions that things are confusing, you really have to dig to the root of the problem. Now, when I say you, I mean the person that has the questions. When the person has the questions, what really are the questions? Do you have a question on the Torah that you don't understand? And that is great. And if you do, then you'll understand it, and then you'll become 100% religious. Because if you think about it, that's the way that the, 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 the thought process should work. I understand what you're saying. It seems very true. But I have a few questions. If those questions are answers, the next step will be to go to become 100% religious. Because then there's no, there's no in-between ground if someone's truth to themselves. So that's how you know where you're true and where you're false. If you're looking for excuses, if you're looking for the answers. If you're going and if you have these questions and you find out those questions and you decide, you know what? That's right, the Torah is legit, I'm going to become religious. Then you know you're searching for the truth. If, and by the way, it doesn't have to happen overnight. Overnight is very difficult. Be like, oh, okay, you know, let me throw out all my whole wardrobe and let's try to, you know, like continue working at minimum wage and see if I can be able to go and support myself to find, you know, some long clothes because extra material costs extra. Of course, the Jewish, you know, prices are, are you know, more You know, like, don't think that everything happens overnight. But the idea is, is where your thought process is. Is your goal be like, okay, that makes sense, that's true. All right, let's take the steps to the right direction. Let's go to the right place. So, And this is also, a, you know, when, when, when people send me these questions against the, the, against the Torah, they call it, it's called Bible criticism. They call it Bible critics. They send me these questions. A lot of times they switch a few words. Sometimes they don't switch anything. It's just like copy and paste the whole thing. Like, Rabbi, can you answer this? I mean, like, please insert a quarter and you'll get an answer. Like, what am I, like, instant, like, you know, like, uh, you know, and by all means, I, I welcome these, uh, these questions. Um, and it's very interesting because... When I ask them, I'm like, okay, this is a great question. Did you look at the sources? Did you actually... So like, they, they bring, let's say, a question, but like three Talmudic sources. Did you look it up? 
and be like, no, I mean, it says it on this website. So I'm like, you trusted everything that this guy said. This is a guy that's going against the Torah with, with, with a reason to go against the Torah, but yet you didn't look at anything and you're like, well, aha, uh-huh, you see? Ah, it must be fake. This is, you could see already where the bias lies in. You guys are following me, my, my, my thought process? That the bias is already that they're not even interested in looking at the sources. All of a sudden I answer them, be like, okay, what's the sources for that? Yeah, the majority of people are, yeah, are ignorant. The majority of people are ignorant regarding to the, to the Torah knowledge. And that's why I think that one of the main reasons why people are not religious the way that they are is ignorance. Not because in spite of sin. They're not like, yeah, I, you know, I hate God and I, you know, very much despise God. Yeah, yeah. In fact, but on the other hand, I know people that are very much, you know, against God. They're like, for what God? You know, I, you know, I, you know, I speak to these, you know, to, the, to these people. Very, very interesting. Like the the whole background on how they got to like they have a hatred. They have like a personal hatred to God. But you know, like one guy told me, he says, when I get up there, God's gonna have to answer a lot of questions. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not laughing now out of respect. That's all the reason. I'm like, when you get up there, somebody's gonna have to answer a lot of questions. <laughs> But it ain't going to be God, I'll tell you that much. Um, but you have to understand where these people come from. The people come from a difficult life, and, you, know, you know, troubled upbringing. And, it, you know, it is what it is. There was once a rabbi who went over to a history professor at NYU. And he said, he says, he's so, you know, like, you know, an Egyptian's pharaohs. You know, you're talking about like, like thousands of years ago. He used an example of, uh, you know, of, of Egyptian rabbi by the name of Thotmis. And he said, they know that he ruled from 1493 to 1481 BCE. He says, how did they get these dates so exact? Like, it's so amazing. So the history professor for NYU said, he said, listen, the academics, you know, the first one kind of makes it up. By the time that it gets to the secondary, secondary and the tertiary sources already, everyone accepts that as a fact. Like, they don't even question it. Like, the first person, you know, said, like, yeah, roughly around this area, put it in. By the third time that it gets already published, it's a fact already. There's, like, no questions asked, which I found something so interesting, that you have over here people that in the profession themselves note that some of the stuff is kind of made up. Yet people go and be like, well, you see over here, it doesn't match up to the Torah. Where we know the source of the Torah is not made up. The source of historians, the source of all these things, a part of it is sort of guesstimated. But yet we still like, well, you see over here, this guesstimation doesn't match with the Torah. Where in any other logic does that make sense? Where in any other logic does somebody go over to a doctor and the doctor says, you have to take this prescription. Well, listen, someone had a dream about four nights ago. They called me up. They said this medication doesn't work. Can you explain it? <laughs> the doctor would be like, I have another prescription for you to take. You know, and like, here, and he, you know, here you go. So the idea is, is that, the, 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 and this is just the introduction, we have to realize we're the source of the questions that are coming from. So the way that we're going to be speaking about tonight, I can't go through all the biblical criticism because it's going to be a whole huge series in itself. I'm going to give you sort of an overall you know, understanding in it that you could technically apply to 90% plus of those types of cases. And this week in Hashem, next class, we'll be able to understand that. The first thing that I want to speak about is something that Rabbi Trent brings down in regards to the rainbow. So we know the rainbow. The rainbow is, uh, what, you know, if you look at the Torah sources, we know the rainbow was brought down because of the flood. What happened was is that God made a flood, destroyed all of mankind, right? Wasn't so great for mankind. God says, don't worry about it, not going to happen again. Uh, but if I see that it's really bad, you're going to see, you know, a nice, beautiful rainbow color. And it's, fun, so, you know, it's so funny, interesting that uh, one of the problems that it did was, you know, man-to-man relationships. And the, the you know, the man-to-man relationship flag, or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what they call a flag. They don't own a country. I don't know why they have a flag. Uh, you know, the symbol. Um, you know, when they have the, the symbol is, you know, like, hey, this is the destruction, uh, you know, of the, of the marble. That's because of us. You're welcome for the beautiful sky. 
You know, like, it, it's, it's funny because, like, everything has a secondary source to it. Like, people don't even realize there's so much stuff that's going around in the spiritual, in the spiritual realm. So when we're looking at the rainbow, a lot of scientists and anybody that had any, you know, basic, you know, science, you know, you know, understanding will be like, no, it's not. It's not because of God. It, there's, there's like, there's reasons for it. There's reasons for it. And in fact, if you want to go and explain it, the, in, in fact, if you, if you understand how the rainbow works, the rainbow is, is, is literally a, a meteorological phenomenon. What happens is, is it's based off a, you have a, 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 I guess a beam of light, of white light that goes in, and it's based off reflection, refraction, and dispersion that makes a rainbow what it is. To explain it like this, the uh, light travels at different speed. Um, yeah, light travels at different speed in different materials. So light travels in ear very fast. In glass, slower. In water, also slower than, than light. So what happens is with refraction is when light is traveling, and then it hits a slow point, it sort of slows down, which will make sense. Think of it this way. You guys know the Segways? This is the way that the science is. So the Segways, uh, and now they have those, I don't know if they're called hoverboards, yeah. those things that people break their wrists on, right? So those, um, those things that people stand, you lean forward. Right, right, exactly. So imagine you're, you're driving, one, you're uh, standing, I don't know, riding one of those, and on ground it works very fast. But imagine you're on the sidewalk and there's grass, and you, one wheel goes on the grass. Now the grass, very obviously, is going to go a lot slower than the one that's on the, the flat surface. It's going to go a lot faster. What's going to happen if you're going and you're driving and then your one wheel accidentally goes on grass? What happens is, is that this is going to go slower, this is going to go faster. What's that going to be to the direction that you're going? All of a sudden, you're going to be going this way. You guys follow that? Yeah. You're going to slow, you're, you're, you're going to change the direction because of the, of the, you slow down and you slow down in, sp- in speed. This is known as, as refraction. When light hits a certain, you know, a, a certain material that slows it down, it refracts and it changes directions. Now what happens is different colors travel at different speed. This is something that is known as dispersion. So for example, blue light travels slower than red light. So, when blue light, every, the lights travel the same speed in ear. But once you hit a sort of a slow point, they'll change the speed that they travel. Blue will go slower. Red will go faster. So they will change the directions of where they're going to go. They're going to go refract. But at the same point in time, they're going to refract at different angles. Because red, it goes, let's say, faster than blue or faster than yellow. It goes at different speeds. So it's going to change at different angles. Now, there's something else that you need to know. The white light is known as, is it's described as a polychromatic light. It's known as, uh, it's, it's a light that has all the lights in it. It has everything in it. You, you just don't see it because it's just, it's, it's made in, uh, um, it's, it's different wavelengths. Each light is a different wavelength. Is this my phone? Yeah, why is it so? Okay. So, the idea behind this is, is that you have a white light. An example of white light is something from the sun or a torch. So, a white, when a white light hits a sort of, let's say, glass or water, it will refract, it will bend, but it will bend at different angles. So a red will bend before the blue, and the blue will bend before the violet, and the violet will bend before the yellow, and so on and so forth. What is it, Roy G. Biv or something like that? Right? So um, all those angle, all those lights, they, they travel at different speeds, so they bend at a different angles. So when you have that, they're gonna they're gonna change their their way that they're they're looking, and they're gonna and they're gonna you're gonna see each one in a separate sense because they all you know you sort of like separated from each other because of the speed that they were going in. This is how it works when you see a rainbow. When you see a rainbow, by the way, you realize when you see a rainbow, you always see, you're always in the middle of the arc. They, they say, uh, 
there's no beginning, there's no end for everybody because it's all it's it's like an optical illusion, but it's not. It's there, but it's based off of the way that it, you have to stand. Your back has to be towards the sun. You have to be looking at it at a forty degree, like a somewhat a forty degree angle. It has to bend for you. And not only that, there has to be in the background. There has to be some sort of like rain or droplets or mist in the air that when the light. When the sunlight hits that rain, it reflects back to you, and then it will make a, what it looks like a rainbow. And that's where the rainbow, you know, that's how the rainbow comes on. So if you go to somebody and be like, you know what, we have a rainbow? We have a rainbow because God said it's going to destroy the world, and now we have a rainbow. And somebody else can be like, exactly why I said no refraction of this person, you know, you know, throw out all that terminology, be like, that's why we have a rainbow. Which is true. But we have to think about, we have to split things apart. There is, the science deals with the what. It explains what happens. It, it can explain how the light travels, how the light reflects, how the right light refracts, how, how it's dispersed. That it could explain. But it doesn't deal with the why. Like, why does that do that? Like, why? Like, you could understand. It's like, the morale explains it as science gives the cause, but Torah gives the cause of the cause. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it gives you the background de- details of what happens. So, we know what the science behind it happens, but the background behind it, the reason why it happens, that the Torah says because of the flood. Because of the flood, what happened so many years ago, so many, what are you talking about, almost 5,000 years ago, because of that, you're talking about that it, it, the reason that there is that science behind it is due to the fact of what God said that happened in the, you know, after the flood. Now the Rambam says that the entire world, with all its detail, was taught to Moshe and the Torah. Everything is the Torah. In fact, Rabbeinu B'chai goes and says the Torah is called Tamima. Tamima means complete. Everything is in the Torah. Then we have a question. We have a question, then how do we deal with the very, very obvious contradictions between science and the Torah? So, like, things that make absolutely no sense, that science says it's 100% wrong, and Torah says in one way, how do we understand that type of contradictions? So, the, the, you know, the Ramchal explains like this. The Ramchal says, and I want to quote a few, it says this in Adi Bamaram. He says that any statement made by the sages regarding, and he uses the example, the sun and the stars, that do not make sense according to what we know, it refers to its inner essence. Inner existence. There's a lot of things that the Torah doesn't deal with just what we see. The Torah, in fact, deals with more in the spiritual realm than in the physical realm. So there's a lot of things that we could learn and see that the Torah, and it makes you know absolutely no sense. Be like, it's not refer- it's referring to something a lot deeper than that. An example, if you look at the Gemara Psachim, page 111, that says that if somebody walks ten amot, uh, four amot, I'm sorry, in Eretz Israel, they have a share in the world to come. Does that mean that somebody... So, I'm sorry, what did I, did I say Ksuvis? What did I say? Which, which bracha? Which Gemara? No one knows. Okay, it was Gemara Ksuvis. I don't know what I said. Ksuvis, page 111, um, 111a, says that if somebody walks four Amas in al Israel, they have a share in the world to come. Does that mean that this person, all of a sudden, he walks four Amas, takes a flight to Israel, walks four Amas, walks about eight feet, Gets back on the plane and be like, take me straight to Vegas, baby. You know, like, I got a share in the world to come. Of course not. It doesn't mean that if you, if you go and you read the Gemara just on a basic understanding and you think you are completely lost, completely gone. It's dealing with a lot deeper, a lot deeper issues, a lot of deeper, you know, essence. And this is something I want to do a quick review that we spoke about before regarding the Agadatic, uh, you know, the Agadata Gemaras. Things like stories and parables that Gemara says, and be like, it makes no sense. How is it possible? And there are many, there are many, many sources, and we'll, we'll name a few that, you know, for example, the Rambam. The Rambam in Hakadamata, the Rambam, the Pilosh Mishnah says that when learning the Agada correctly, it, ha- it has, it's loftier than anything else. All the secrets is inside of here. The, sh- the Shla also says that all the secrets, the secrets of Kabbalah is inside the Agada Gemara. The Gra also writes that it contains all the secrets written, written within them. And again, finally, the Shulchan Arach Harav says that most secrets in the Torah is alluded to in the, it's hidden in the Agadas. 
Now the question is, when you read the Gados, you don't read the secrets. You read like stories, you read parables, you read things that sometimes you don't understand. So what's going on over here that's all the secrets? So what happened was, is that originally the Torah was all, the oral law was only meant to be oral. But the problem was, is that people were forgetting it. People were getting, you know, it, it was coming to a time that there was a lot of, um, you know, exiles and Jews were getting dispersed around throughout, throughout the entire world. So what the sages is that they figured that they have to put it in writing. But they're not going to put it in writing that everybody could realize all the secrets. <laughs> Only people on the high level that I could understand the deep secrets of the Torah, when they read the Agatha, they'll be able to understand it. So what they did was that they hid a lot of the secrets in the Agatha Gemara. So in there is written. So if you go, and you have a question, and you're like, oh, look at this. It doesn't make sense. The Torah says this, and it's like, obviously a contradiction. The first question that you have to ask is, that, do you know what you are talking about when you're quoting the Torah? Think about, think about this example. Let's say you learn some elementary you know, mathematics. You learn some basic mathematics. Then you walk into some, I don't know, you walk into like some abstract algebra, like advanced calculus, like mathematics, like, like the most advanced of the advanced. We're like, you're used to just letters in a math equation. There is numbers and symbols and Greek symbols that you have no idea what's doing there. Be like, uh, you know, like solve for X. I'm like, I don't know where X is. You know, like, uh, you know, you see over there a backwards three, which is really an E, but like whatever. You know, like you see like all these different like, you know, symbols. Then you see like an alpha, omega, you know, you're like, you know, you see all these things and you're reading on that and you're like, this is wrong. This is so stupid. Like, how could anybody believe that this is math? This is not math. This is some gibberish that somebody with a you know crazy here just wrote on the board. It doesn't make any sense. Be like, no, this is advanced. You just don't know anything. So you have some people that they go and they criticize the Torah, and they know nothing. They know they don't even know basic algebraic equations when they're going into the most advanced. You know, you know advanced mathematic equation that could be out there. They're trying to compare tomatoes to something that is not on this earth. Like they're, they're not even comparing. They're like, how could you ask a question when you don't understand it, what you're dealing with? It's the same thing. You don't expect someone to go to an advanced calculus class and be like, well, yeah, I, I learned addition, subtraction. Pretty much learned, what is that? The parentheses, uh, my dear Aunt Sally. And, you know, well, please excuse. Pemtis, yeah, thank you. Right, so please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Um, you know, like, like I know everything. You know, like generally, at any time in a person's life, they think they know everything. If you realize that when you are younger, you knew everything. Now you think, yeah, I pretty much know everything. Maybe I was like five percent or two percent. I don't know. The smart people realize they know nothing. Um, the, but majority of people think, like, yeah, I pretty much got it covered. You know, I got, you know, I pretty much got it, uh, you know, knocked down. So. When the Talmud has contradictions, when the Talmud says something that is contradicted to the Torah, you have to think about it. Do you understand what the Gemara is talking about? Do you know what you're talking about? And by the way, this is not like a cop-out answer. Like, it'll be like, you know, there'll be like two obvious contradictions, and then they'll be like, well, uh, you don't understand it. I'll be like, okay, fine, it's very easy to say. It'll be like, you know, you go, you go into anything, be like, well, you just don't understand the depth of it. That's not, what the to- that's not what we're trying to say over here. We realize that everything in the Torah has layers upon layers of layers of understanding it. So it's not something that's just like very obvious answer, be like, yeah, it's, it's deep. The entire Torah is deep. And if you don't understand something because of the art school translation, no effect to art school. Art school is awesome. Shout out to art school. But, in no, but I'm saying just because you read some advanced, you know, English language, uh, you know, with our, you know, by the way, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I think they're dumbing it down for the population. <laughs> because, like, people will learn, let's say, the Gemara, and they'll learn art school, but then they will need a dictionary next to the art school to, like, understand what the English is talking about over there because it says any people. So I don't know if it's true or not, but I think that, you know, regardless, it's great. Regardless, it's, it's an amazing organization, uh, an amazing, uh, they do amazing things. But when you're reading just a plain, simple understanding of the translation of it and you don't understand it, 
take a step back for a second and ask yourself, who are you? You know, like, who do you think you are? Like, really, like, you have a question on that. So maybe it's a question. Maybe it's something that you don't understand. And the problem is that the majority of people that ask me these questions have no understanding of the Gemara. They have no understanding. And I'll tell you like this. This is something that I don't plan on doing. There was... Um, there's a guy from Russia. Um, usually I don't say, I deal a lot with Russians, so it's okay. Um, but it was a guy from Russia that one time, um, not one time, many times used to always write to me and ask me questions. And the questions were, were very simple. There were two contradictions in two psukim. Either in the Tana, anywhere in the Tana, two psukim seem, seem to contradict. And I'm like, this guy's very young. Does he actually learn and read you know, all these things. He actually, I'm very, I was very impressed with the question. By the way, 99% of the questions were all answered, but if you look at Rashi, like that's all you need to do, and it just answers your question, because they just they didn't understand. The majority of the contradictions in the, in the, in the, you know, in the Torah, if you just understand the basic, a little bit more than basic, you'll understand that it's not a contradiction at all. So, what I did, what I did was, is that like, you know, this is going years back, before I realized that people search online for these things, I copied his question, and I just searched it on Google. And it came up, all his questions, exactly word for word, he would like wait and just like copy a question and send to me. And I'm like, oh man, they're like, I thought you were so great. You know, like, I didn't realize, um, you're an imbecile. Uh, so, you know, like, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's hilarious because like, I'm like, you could ask the questions. If it could be, I hope that he is. I hope that he's listening to this. Um, because, the truth is, is that this is not, and again, I'll say it again, it's not a problem that you do that. Yeah, this particular guy, he, he was actually very good. He was actually very good. He was, he was like, he's like, at one point, you know, he was like, okay, I understand that there's no contradictions in the Torah. I understand. Because like, I kept on saying, there's no contradictions in the Torah. Everything is answerable. I was like, I understand. But can you answer this thing? You know, like, so he understood. So he actually grasped that concept. And I'm not saying that it's bad that you search online and you find these things. But do yourself a favor, research it just a little bit. Don't take for granted what, you know, Ahmadinejad did over there online, and he decided that this is what's the problem in the Torah, and Islam is really correct, and hence, this is where, where you know, this is where the issue lies. So don't, search it, review it, look into it, you'll see that the most answers are so easy to answer. Most, and that's why I'm not going to sit here and go through all those answers, because some of them are just so, you know, elementary that there's nothing to talk about. It's just like basic understanding of the Torah, you'll understand that there's no real questions that are, uh, you know, that, that, that are, you're dealing with. So far so clear? Okay. Now, that's fine. Not at all. Every question, oh, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you brought that. Doesn't mean that you only have to answer, ask an intelligent question. Any question is intelligent if you don't understand it. If you're, but you have to be open for the answers. You have to be, the question really is, are you looking for the answers? Or are you looking for excuses? That's really, the, that's really where the question really boils down to. How, this is all said and done. There is one part that sticks out very, like a, like a sore thumb that people need to understand. That, when Chazal, when the Chachamim speak about medical advice in the olden days, that is not to be followed. We do not follow that, that advice. And this is according to Rav Sharir Gohan, says that we are not to use, you know, the Chazal. And in fact, some rabbis even say they put a harem in it. You're not supposed to use Chazal's medical advice. You're supposed to stay far, far away from it. Now let's try to explain that. So this is where we have to understand that we're, we are splitting hairs over here, but there's a reason for it, and we're going to try to explain it very, very clearly. The, we know, and Rav Shira goes and explains this, and he says, we know that the, the, when dealing with 
Talmudic medicine. Not even Talmudic, rabbinic medicine. Like where the rabbis say, yeah, this is for this cure, this is for this cure, this is for this. The rabbis were not doctors. The rabbis were not doctors. Says Rav Shiri Ragon, they use the common medical knowledge of their day. They use, a, they use the contemporary wisdom of the day, and that's what they use on. And in fact, the Rambam also says this. And he says that, he says that the, the science in those days was deficient. And that's the Rambam saying about it. The Rambam lived a thousand years ago. He says, they did not speak about traditions. The sages, when they're dealing with Talmudic medicine, they're not speaking about the traditions. They're regarding, they're, they're just dealing with the issues at hand that was contemporary knowledge. And in fact, the Rambam quotes, in the Gemara in Chulin, page 77a, that says very straight out that the rabbis used to consult with the doctors. The rabbis would consult the doctors asking them what the, what the contemporary medicine would do in that day. Now, the truth is, is that all wisdom is in the Torah. Everything is in the Torah. But not all the rabbis, all the sages had the privilege to that. We know there's a Gemara in Psachim, page 56a, that King Chizkiyahu went and he hid something called the Book of, of Remedies. There was a book, there was a book made by Shlomo Amalek that he had... All the sicknesses, right? If you want to, if you want to hunt for something that's like crazy, like you know, hunt for this. He, there was a. They said they can't use it. It doesn't mean you can't sell it. So, <laughs> gotta think like a Jew. Okay. So, so um, the you know the the idea is that there was uh, Soma Malch made a book, a book that said every I, every disease out there was in the book, right? If you want to. You can search for the, you know, the research for, you know, for the, you know, cancer. Or you can look for this book. Um, the, and where did he get this knowledge from? Shlomo was the wisest of all men. He got this knowledge from the Torah. It's not that he called all the doctors in there and be like, okay, you tell me this. He got this from the Torah. But what happened was, is, is, was King Kiskel went and he hid it. Why did he hit it? Because he saw that people, no more, they trusted in God. They didn't pray to God. As soon as they got sick, they didn't realize that it's based off some sort of background that they got sick. They went over to the, you know, to the, to the book and be like, okay, you know, this sickness, page 144, you know, look over here, you know, take this and you're, you're, you know, you're healed. So they wouldn't even realize, they wouldn't even think, what is the reason that God made me sick? What is the reason that I have this issue? They wouldn't fix anything. The, you know, the Chazal, the, the, you know, the King Chazal saw that it was coming more as a, it was more coming, it was, it was doing more worse than good. So he went and he hit it. Now, Rav Shiru Ragon goes, and he doesn't say that Chazal were mistaken. He doesn't say they were mistaken. He said that they were affected in their time. In their time, they are affected. In fact, this is what the Tosos, the Mo'od Katan, page 11a says. says that, the, that these cures, they don't work today because nature has changed. And we're going to explain that. Now let me be very, very clear with that. Nature has changed seems very problematic to science. Nature doesn't change. You know... Uh, Nature stays exactly the same. So let's try to understand this. The Kesef Mishnah also goes, and it says like this. It says, the Chazal's remedies, the remedies that are, med- the medicinal remedies of a Chazal, was never intended to be universally applicable. It was only meant for, in a specific place, in a specific time. And the Rambam, the Moran of Buchim goes. And it says this also, furthermore. Um, if you want to look at it, it's Chalak Gimel Parak Lamed Dalet. It speaks about it like this. It says that different patients require different prescriptions. We know that to this day. Different patients have different prescriptions. And not only that, but even if someone lives in a different region, had, they live in a different parts of the world, certainly if they live in different periods of time, there's different medication that will be applicable to them. You realize that the same medication is not applicable across the board to everybody who lives. Now why is that? We have to understand there's a few concepts. There's a few variables that come into play over here. Number one, there's technology. Technology puts a very, very big you know, factor into this equation. This is not a static equation. This has a lot of moving parts. If you realize, 
the food that we eat today is not the same that the food that we ate 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Besides all the preservatives and all the additives and everything that we have dealing with over here, everything has changed. Besides the fact that we have available treatment that is available today is not available before. You realize something as simple as Tylenol. You take Tylenol for a headache, so it takes away your headache, it takes away your fever, but you don't know what else it does to your body. Now it could be that something in the Chazal's time would be at work, but now that we introduce so many chemicals into our body, so many different variables into our body, it doesn't work anymore. Nature has changed. doesn't mean that nature's you know, equation has changed. It means that we have changed. It's different. The biological you know, you know, basic necessities are different. And we see this. You see people, this is the basic idea of people eating healthy from people eating unhealthy. People eating healthy, they live a longer life, they're more healthier. Not necessarily, of course. You know, you have somebody who goes and he smokes. And, you know, and he says, you know, well, my grandfather smoked and he lived till 100. And somebody else, you know, he didn't smoke, he lived his healthy life and he got hit by a car. This is their logic, by the way. You know, the truth is, it depends what they're smoking. Um, Depends, that brings up their logic. But, the idea is that, you know, what you put into your body makes a tremendous difference. Now, not only that, but also the climate makes a difference. Now, we know that our, 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 our entire ecological system has changed. Right? This is known, and I'm not going to get into this, because I told myself I want to get into this, uh, something called global warming. Now, I'm not going to get into this. I'm not. It doesn't matter. Everything has changed because you have chemicals. Thank you. Thank you for drafting me over that. The, you have fluoride. You, you have so many chemicals in your water that you never had before. You had so many different things that are placed. Your whole being is different. So the fact that nature changed makes actually a lot of sense because nature has changed. Now, granted, we do live longer than, you know, two, three, four, five hundred years ago. Uh, but at the same point in time, what worked a thousand years ago might not necessarily work today because you introduced to yourself different variables that, that move the, move the equations. Yeah. So one of the one of the ideas behind that is you get yeah. So when you get used to a certain this this is very common for example in let's say antibiotics or in pain medication. Yeah. Or, yeah. You need a higher dose. Right, you need a higher dose because your body gets used to it. But that's on a personal level. I'm talking about like on a world level, on an ecosystem level. Like the entire ecosystem has changed. We can't deny it. We are are putting out into the world a lot of things that that are not healthy for the Earth's atmosphere. That, you know, all these, you know, have you ever gone to, let's say, the country and you like take a deep breath? And you'll be like, oh man, I feel smarter already. Like, uh, you know, I could do algebra. You know, you're like, you're like, I'm a genius. You know, you feel different. You ever go that? And then you go back to New York, right? And you feel like you just smoked the 17 packs of cigarettes in one shot. You know, and all you did was just cross the street. Uh, you know, it's, it's the environment does have an effect on you and you can feel it. You can feel it at, you know, you can feel it as a, you know, you know, as a being. When you go to these places that, I say the country, but it's anywhere, you go over that there's not so much pollution. You're like, you feel different. You, f- you really feel different. And imagine what that is if an entire world was like that. You had a question? Yeah, well, if Chazal knew that this wasn't for all time, then why would they include it in the Gemara? A lot of things that they included in Gemara was specifically... To that, this is where it comes in that you have to know what they're talking about. Now, if you would just go and read it, be like, uh-huh, 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 Vegas ticket. You know, like, and then you go... When you're thinking like that, yeah, but if you actually go and understand it, according to the rabbis, you'll be able to realize what's applicable, what's not applicable. They know what's applicable. And we're going to give some examples of what we see, what is applicable nowadays and what is not applicable nowadays. So, uh, and, and by the way, the, the fact that we see that different 
people require different medication is very common nowadays, especially true in, in, in psychiatric medication. Psychiatric medication, you have one medication works for somebody else, and another medication, they have a terrible side effect. And a lot of the things what they do is that they keep on trying different things. Now, the doctors, they're sort of, you know, when you're dealing in, in, the, in the psychiatric world, and anybody that has any remote knowledge will understand what I'm talking about, they'll write a prescription about an antidepressant. And they'll be like, well, doc, I'm like been throwing it up. Okay, try this one. You know, like, and they'll be like, it didn't work. Okay, try this one. Be like, doc, are you guessing what's going on over here? Like, you know, like, technically, they all work, but everybody's different. And the body reacts to it differently. And it's not the doctor's fault. The doctor's not able to go and figure out, be like, do you like cheese? Uh, you know, like, maybe. Is it, you know, like, there's no formula out there nowadays that could be like, this medication works for this type of personality, this medication. Because the bodies are different. And every, if everybody is different, and that's why if you realize, for some people, you have acetaminophen, so something like Tylenol will work better than ibuprofen, something like Motrin. And for some people, it's the other way around. And for some people, you know, it's only heroin. Well, you know, like you do. But you have different people have different things. I'm just kidding. Heroin doesn't work for anybody. Uh, let's go to morphine. One step behind that. You know, you know that. There's some people that react to medication differently. That is, uh, you know, that is just the way that, um, you know, that, that the body, that the body uh, works. Okay. So... The, let, let's try to, let's try to, to, to do a, a you know, quick uh, summary. The Ramah says like this, says that the physiological makeup of the humans have changed. And this is the, the, what we have said. The Rambam and Sheher Agon also says that the, what they spoke about, the rabbis in the days of the, let's say the Gemara, they spoke about the science in those days. It wasn't based off tradition. It was based on the science. As science expands, as science grows, it means, okay, this is obviously not more applicable. Doesn't mean that they, you know, like, it doesn't invalidate basically the entire, the entire Torah. And this is particularly we're talking about when dealing with medicine. With medicine, excuse me. The Ma'aril says, he says, no, no, no. He says the medicine is just as effective that they were today that they were back then. So that's what that Ma'aril says. The Ma'aril goes and says, he says, the only problem is that we don't know how to apply it correctly. Don't blame it on the formula. Blame it on the practitioner that doesn't know how to apply the formula. You don't know exactly all the... And in fact, the Chavos Yair goes and it says, it says, we don't know the identities of many things. And furthermore, we know the correct dosages of certain things. There are certain things that have to be the correct dosage that they interact with each other and then they interact with the body that has to go... We don't know that. It's not that the Chazal were wrong. There are some rabbis that say, no, 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 Chazal was right. Those opinions are legit. Don't blame it on them that it doesn't work. Blame it on you that you don't know how to apply the, you know, the formula correctly. Now... You have to realize the Gemara doesn't say like you know, go to the nearest you know Rite Aid and you know purchase your you know your good farm what well, I don't know like Rite Aid brand of like Tylenol that's going to work the best. It gives you the formula, but if you don't know the formula, if you don't know how to apl- apply the formula, then of course the medication is not going to work. The, 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 you know it, even the slightest variance makes makes a tremendous amount of uh, of difference in the actual formula. The that is true. However, there are certain ideas that even where science, where current medical knowledge disagrees with the Torah, we still go according to the Torah. And one of these is neonatal jaundice. So, uh, you, uh, this is the Gemara and Shabbat, page 134a. You guys, uh, jaundice is like when the baby turns yellow. So, when a boy is yellow, we don't do a brit milah. Uh, you know, one of the factors is the bleeding issues. So, there was, uh, um, one of the things is that it, this is something that we take particularly, even if the current medicine tells you that it's okay, we listen to the Gemara and we delay the bleed. There was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Moshe Meiselman, and he brings down this story of his own son. And he goes, and by the way, he has a very interesting sefer uh, called Chazal and Science, uh, or something along those lines that he, you know, that he brings a lot of information that it, we will discuss some of the things that he, that he brings down. He had a, a son was born, and his son was yellow. He was jaundiced. He was, he was yellow when he came out. 
And a few days later, a few days later, the the hospital goes and discharge him. And why they discharge him? Because the bilirubin count came low, and they felt that the child was safe to be discharged, and they discharge him. Now that. Pediatrician at the time was the head neonatologist of of that hospital. Goes over to this uh, to to the to this person to who's a rabbi, and he says, "Listen, you could have a brit milah. I know that he had circumcision. He says you could have a brit milah on the eighth day. Everything's okay." So the rabbi says, "Awesome, thanks." When the rabbi's rabbi came to visit, and he said, "You know, like you know, this is what the rabbi said. This is what the doctor. I'm sorry, this is what the doctor said." The rabbi said, "You're not doing the brit milah on the eighth day. You're waiting until the jaundice goes away, and then you're going to wait a certain amount of days, and then you're going to do the brit milah." Suffice to say, he listened to his rabbi. He didn't listen to what the doctor says. Because when it comes to certain things, especially when you're dealing with certain things, we trust the, the rabbis moreover, especially when you're dealing with risk, we're gonna deal with, we're gonna go into the more safer side, and we're gonna listen to the rabbis as opposed to, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, the current, uh, the current medicine. And uh, this, however, is not at all, in, in all cases. There is a Gemara in Shabbat, page 109a, that says that if you have a wound in the back of your hand, or the back of the foot, in these locations, this is life-threatening. And this, because it's life-threatening, you can violate Shabbat because of this. Now, this is how it's codified and it's ruled by the, by the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch. However, nowadays, we don't violate Shabbat for a bruise or a wound in those locations. Now, the question is like, why? What changed? And if you know anything about medicine, so if you see something, if let's say you're, you're, you know, you're a Bible critic, you're looking over here, be like, aha, you see the rabbis are wrong. There's a very, very simple explanation for this. Back then, there was something, you know, the, one of the major, a, a big part of the reason why people passed away young, especially when you're dealing with medical issues, especially when you're dealing with open wounds, is something known as infection. They didn't deal with infection very well. Sepsis. They have a systemic infection that goes around and destroys the entire, the, you know, the entire body. It's an infection that goes into the entire body. So, nowadays, when you go into the hospitals, one of, one of the main things that they see that you, they, they do is that they work to try to prevent infection. Because infection, especially pneumonia, a lot of the, a lot of the problems that you, when you go into the hospitals, you get in the hospital because of infection. That's why if you go to almost every single room in a hospital, you have a Purell, you know, sanitizer. And that's why most people, when they leave the hospital, their hands are chapped because every time they see it, they're like, I kind of need it. And be like, and, you know, they lotion it. And, but now, now they put some vitamin E and some lotion to it, but it, but it, you know, it does, what you're doing is you're trying to kill the infections. And, the problem is that they realize nowadays, our, with our scientific knowledge, we realize that an infection causes tremendous amount of problems. So we try to minimize. That's why you have all these antiseptic ideas. That's why, uh, I don't know if anybody has ever seen a surgeon go into surgery. They wash their hands in a particular thing. You ever realize they do this? Right? They're not showing everyone the manicures. That's not what they're doing. Right? They're going, and they're, the whole problem in itself. They're going and they put, even the gloves that they use is specially made gloves that doesn't carry any, they don't just use regular gloves out of a box when they do, when they, when they do open, open heart surgery. They're not using regular gloves. They're using specified gloves that are made sure that these are infection free, that these are very, very sterile gloves. Everything that they do is, is sterile. And in fact, even the utensils are sterilized. When they're cutting things out, when they're cutting a body open, they have to make sure that the utensils are sterilized. To the extent that sometimes so much as a life-threatening condition can occur if they don't sterilize that, and then a bacteria goes into the body because it didn't sterilize, you know, sterilize one of the one of the utensils in there, and they introduced a bacteria into the body. The bacteria that went became turned into went into the blood and went systemic, went throughout the entire body, and that went go and, and it, could, it could actually kill people, and it happens nowadays. You know, sepsis is a very very life-threatening condition. So the rabbis back then, when they said there's a there's a you know. 
there's a life-threatening condition in the back of the hand, the back of the wound. One of the examples, that, one of the reasons that we give is yes, because of sepsis. It's a very there's a lot of blood vessels that are that are that are on you know on the top of the hand, the top of the foot. And in fact, if you, you know some people that are very veiny, you'll see a lot of veins in those areas. You know, uh, you know those type of people. When you go to a phlebotomist, you know when they take uh, you know when the the, the the practitioners that take the blood. They, when they see people that have like veins pop out, they're like, they feel like they just won the lottery. You know, like I, I have one of those type of veins. You know, when they, when I, they come, you know, they're so happy. They're like, oh wow. You know, like, you know, this is, and that's why this, it's very interesting. What current technology is doing and it's currently working on it is, you know, so one of the, have you ever tried to get your blood taken? And they're like, no, no, no. And they're just like sticking you on different angles. And you'd be like, could I order, you know, you're like, like can I order a different, different person? You know, please. And at one point you're like, just give me that. You know, like, you're just like, like stick it into my heart for crying out loud and just take the blood directly. You know, because they're like, they're like, I'm so sorry. You know, like, I don't know what's happening. You know, are you alive? You know, like, and they're like poking you and all things. And then they sit, and then you come out with like black and blue marks and different, you know, and different here. And be like, you should have seen how many tears she cried. You know, like, it's, some people, it's very hard to note, to see the veins. They exist. So what a very interesting technology they're doing is is, it's like a sort of a system that maps out the veins. It's sort of like an, I don't know if it's infrared or what technology that they're using, that they show you the, the, like it's a screen, that you could see exactly where the veins are so you could go and, and pinpoint the, you know, the, you know, the blood vessels. So, but needless to say, when you have a lot of blood vessels in a certain area, and if there's a scrape or something in there, and especially if you're not familiar with the rules and the ideas and the, the, the medical knowledge behind sepsis and, and uh, you know, infection, that could cause a life-threatening condition. So the rabbi said that if you had a bruise in a certain area, a cut in a certain area, that's life-threatening. Yeah, back then it was life-threatening. Nowadays it's not life-threatening because we understand how to work around it and what we need to do. So it's not life-threatening. But back then it was, it was uh, you know, uh, life-threatening and so much to the extent that you were allowed to violate Shabbat for that area. So far so good? Okay, excellent. The, there's, another, there's another idea with, regarding hot water for a baby on Shabbat. So in the Gemara on Shabbat, page 134b, goes and says like this. It says that an infant requires washing with hot water before and after circumcision. And also on the third day afterwards, after the circumcision, the baby needs hot water. To the extent that you're allowed to violate Shabbat to produce, the, to get the baby, you know, the hot water. Now this is codified by the Rambam, the Rush, and the Torah. However, this is where it gets very interesting. The Shulchan Aruch, so the Shulchan Aruch lived about let's say roughly 500 years ago. Um, and obviously the Rambam, the Rosh, and the Torah lived prior to that. By the time the Sukhan came around, he said that at, this, at his time, the situation has changed. No longer was there any danger in performing that you needed to wash the baby in hot water. Previously, it was required, it was a danger that you had to wash the baby in hot water. But during already the time of Yosef Kairu, when he wrote the Shukhan Aruch, says no longer was that a danger. But here's the most interesting part. That the Ramah, Ramosha Islavish, at the same time who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, so the, the Shulchan Aruch is written in the Sephardic, you know, you know, um, you know, understanding. The Ramah is the Ashkenazic understanding, and that's why you have both of them. One is the Ramah, one is the Shulchan Aruch. Whoever understands what I'm talking about, whoever doesn't understand, just forget about it. Um, lived at the same time, and he said that in his place, it was still a, it was still a custom because it was still dangerous. So in his place, you are allowed to violate Shabbat because of it for certain rabbinic decrees. But in the in the Sephardic places, it wasn't anymore a you know a problematic. So you didn't need to violate. Here we see that not only a different time has a um, has has a a a, a 
reaction to the actual to the actual medical response, but actually different locations in the world had a different response to the same problem. In the the Shulchan Aruch said it's a problem. You have to deal with it this way. You have to you, you don't have, you're not allowed to violate Shabbat. The Allah says no. In our place, you do still need to violate. You do need to do it to a certain to a certain degree. So. That was, you know, and, and by the way, the Mishnah Bura brings down over there that Chazal was not mistaken. They were not mistaken. Circumstances have changed. That is what changed. Not that the Chazal uh, was uh, was mistaken. Okay. The, there's another, um, other, you know, other interesting idea regarding premature babies. The um, the Gemara Vamot, page forty two a, says that babies that are born in their eighth month are not viable. They're not likely to live out. Now, bear with me for a second to understand this. If they're born in the seventh or in the ninth month, they're more likely to live out. They're more viable. So the Chazanish goes and says that the sages, they observed it. And they saw that the, in the seventh month, the infant mortality rate was very, very high. Which means that the likelihood of the infant to, to live dropped significantly in the seventh month. In the eighth month, it dropped even more than in the seventh month. And in the ninth month, it shot up. So what, they, what, the, what the Chachamim went, and this is based off also the contemporary wisdom and knowledge that they had back then, is that, that there's two tracks for development. There's a seventh month development track, and there's a ninth month development track. So the seventh month development track means that the baby needs seventh month to develop, and by the time that they hit the seventh month, then they're fully developed. That's why the babies that are born in the eighth month or the seventh month, and they survive, those are the babies that are in the seventh track, you know, you know track. And the babies that don't survive, they were in the ninth month track. Now, if you understand what I, basically what I'm trying to say, what the Chamim was saying is that there are certain babies that survived and certain babies that didn't survive in the eighth month. And the Chazal explaining why. Certain babies need, they, they, uh, develop more quicklier, quicker. And, um, and certain babies develop slower. And depending on the track that you are, that's why it survived. Now, according to contemporary wisdom to date, that doesn't really make so much sense because the babies are developing more or less the same rate. However, this is not true, you know, per se. That's why you see certain, uh, um, even twins are born, you know, some are born, some, but they're born different weights, different things. If everything's developed, now, I, I, I tried to do some preliminary research in it. I didn't have time to go, to go in depth in it, but there is a scientific method to how to the embryo, embryo is an infant in the womb, how it develops. Now, it does develop according to a standard procedure, but it doesn't mean that it always follows that standard procedure. It does sometimes go outside of that standard procedure. And that's why you see sometimes, and that's why, that there's a, after a certain point where genetic kicks in. And that's why you have certain problems or not problems. Or, you know, sometimes you have a baby that's born nine pounds, and sometimes you have a baby that's born four pounds. Now, and sometimes they're born in the same, in the same term. If everything was scientific going exactly the same, not a, you know, then everything will be, every baby will be born exactly the same. So obviously we have some sort of different idea on it. Now, that's not the answer that I'm giving for this question, for the problem. But rather, the rabbis at that point in time used the contemporary wisdom of that point in time. Now, nowadays we have different wisdom. We, we don't go by that particular wisdom. Doesn't mean that that wisdom was wrong. It was right in that time. That was the contemporary wisdom. It wasn't something, not everything the Chazal said regarding medicine was based off tradition, but rather it was based off contemporary, uh, contemporary wisdom. The Chazan Ish says, Thank you, by the way. The Chazan Ish goes and says, and you're there, it says that nature has changed. And we know nature has changed. The parent, the mother, the nature has changed. Even the stress level of the mother has changed. What she inputs into her body has changed. Or so many factors have changed that you cannot use the same equation that you used so many years ago because there's so many different variables that, that, you know, that change over here. Okay. 
Now there's a very interesting, uh, you know, topic that, uh, you, know, I, you know, I want to discuss. Um, you need about like 15, you know, 20 more minutes and we'll be, uh, be done. The, there's one of the 39 forbidden melachot is netilat neshana. You're not allowed to kill. Right? And I'm not talking about humans. That's you're not allowed to kill ever. Right? That's not one of the third. But like, it's Shabbat. You're lucky. Because after Shabbat, I'm Rabbeinu Thompson. You have some. You know, like, if you go, like, it's not, it doesn't mean that, you know, you're not, it's talking about, like, animals and certain things. There was one time that I was eating by somebody and there was a fly, you know, like a very big, you know, fly. And they're looking at it and then they do that. And they kill the fly, which obviously he's not allowed to. So he looks at me, like, straight in the eye. Ever or Shabbat? Huh? On Shabbat. On Shabbat. No, yeah. Ever. Uh, yeah. Um, he goes, he looks at me and he says, on next Shabbat, I would not be able to, you know, say, I'm like, <laughs> he said, on next Shabbat. I'm not going to be able to enjoy Shabbat if I have a fly in my house. I'm like, I don't even know where to begin. Um, I, I don't. I, you know, like, it, it reminds me of the person, I had, a, you know, I had one of my students who was trying to work on keeping Shabbat. Very interesting. He came to a lot of classes. He watches TV always on Shabbat. And he says, Rabbi, doesn't the rabbi say you have to enjoy Shabbat? This is how I enjoy Shabbat. I have to. So not only am I allowed, it's a mitzvah for me to go and, and, uh, you know, and, you know, and, and watch TV and Shabbat. I'm like, do me a favor, whatever you do, don't get into the drug business because you're going to think you're the biggest sage. You'll be like, you don't understand, Rabbi, this guy is so depressed. He needs heroin. He needs it. He needs it. It's, it's a kanat nefashot. You don't understand. You don't understand. The guy needs the cocaine. He's sleeping. He doesn't, he uses it to learn. He uses it to learn. I had a class. Had, have, have, had, whatever you want to call that um, uh, people tend to prepare before the class. Um, by preparing, hmm, how do I explain this very nicely? Um, yeah. Um, they went to visit, you know, Crocodile Dundee, uh, you know, and, you know, they used some special K, you know, some, some you know, you know, morning cereal. I don't know what the word terminology that they use nowadays, but they have you know some special kush, um, you know, for you know, you know, for that. You know, I had, I have, I have, I have such mumchim that I know that come to my. You know, there's somebody that I know that got whatever. That's a different story in its entirety. It's one of the reasons why I don't record that class. Um, and um, but like I was asking, asking them like, you know, I know somebody who got caught whatever, dealing with marijuana. Got the, so I'm like, I asked him, I'm like, what is a three pounds of marijuana? What's like six pounds of marijuana? You know, like, if I were to ask you, what is six pounds of feathers? Would you know what to say? Be like, I don't know, six pounds? They were like, it's roughly like this. You know, like, they were giving me dimensions. of like, what? you know, I'm like, that is way too much information. How do you know that? I'm like, six pounds is a lot. You know, that's like, there's like a pillowcase size. You know, like, they're dealing with like, they're, they're like, there's certain people... Well, yeah, they're, they're, you know, you know, you ask them what an ebola is, they'll, they'll, they'll know exactly where, where exactly what they're dealing with, what they, you know, of, of the situation, you know, that, you know, that's going on over here. The, um, so when somebody goes and starts saying, they start using the Torah against the Torah. So they start using and be like, okay, listen, I need to smoke up because my wife is a special type of person. And or my husband is. A, I had a very stressful day. You don't understand. He says if I don't do this, I, you know, I'm bad. You know, I've had people, and I can't. I wish I could kid you about this. That would do very, very bad sins. How to do it clearly? Not with their wife, to say that it's going to make my wife love, make me love her more. 
you're crazy, man. You're crazy. I don't even have anything to tell you. Yeah. Right, right. That's great. That's very good. I can never ever say on camera um, to do that and be like, you know, like someone gets busted eating fourteen brownies. Be like. Most of you want to get you don't want to get me started on marijuana on this. Um, most of fine has a true about marijuana, but let's leave that for a different class. Well, the person wants to indulge, they can't like make heat to indulge. So they have to find other ways to indulge. Is that like is that another way of, like using Torah? Much this way than the other way, mm-hmm. right? Can the camera can't see me? Okay, so no one knows on camera what I just said, but that is much this way than the other way. Yes. Um, so uh, um, the truth is, anybody with a Brain who knows what I'm talking about, but um, the 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 idea is is that is that it's still I'm not con- I'm not saying like yes here's my stamp of approval please you know I know some kosher bakeries that uh, you know it's it's not something that 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 should be done but you know it's like saying you know Percocet or heroin go figure right um, you know so so there is there is obviously off camera I could talk about it uh, you know I could talk about it more probably shouldn't have said that. I probably shouldn't have said that. Okay, so um, no, no, I'm too, it's come to a point where I have no patience to edit anymore. So um, all I could say is very simple. People want more information? Come to the class. Okay, that's it. Uh, you know, the plug for the class. Yeah, everybody's welcome. All the women are welcome. And I, I'm every Thursday at BJX at 1601 Quentin Road, except for possibly next week. My, you know, possibly uh, might not be. So um, okay. So now. Let's, so now, the, you're, not allowed to, you're not allowed to murder, you're not allowed to kill on Shabbat. You're talking about you know, flies, animals also. There's something very, very interesting. That the, one, of the, one of the reasons you're not allowed, to, you're not allowed to, to, to kill on Shabbat an animal is because one of the things that they used to do for the Mishkan, which we know how the basic of, of the Malachot of Shabbat go, is that they used to, you know, rams, they used to use, excuse me, the ramskin for the Mishkan. So any ram, the way that, the way that, uh, that something that reproduces like a ram, Cannot be killed because it's just like the same category of, of a ram. There's a Gemara in Shabbat, page 107b. That says like this. Someone who kills a kina. A kina is a very big question, what that means. So let's translate it, translate it as lice, because that's what most, most mythologists go and explain. However, it's not so simple. Kina does not necessarily only mean lice. But let's say it's talking about lice. Somebody that kills lice. Well, yeah. Somebody that kills lice on Shabbat is like they killed a camel on Shabbat. Now, what does that mean? Someone who kills? It means like it's the same prohibition. You not like kill lice, you not kill Shabbat. The rabbis and Rabbi, you know, the rabbis disagreed and said no. They disagreed only with Rabbi Elazar, only on kina. Why they do not? Because a kina does not the ena periyaviriva. It doesn't reproduce periyaviriva. The most simple explanation I can say is like sexual reproduction. Says the rabbis, because they don't reproduce like that, it does, yeah, that's, we're gonna get to that. Because lice don't reproduce the same way as like, for example, camels and rams and all the other animals, they do not include in this, in this area. It means that they do not periaviriva, like, like, like all the other animals. So the simple explanation that we can understand this, means they do not reproduce like other animals reproduce, which is through sexual reproduction. However, this is also codified in the, in the, in the halakha, that you're allowed to kill lice on Shabbat, because it doesn't count that they, they don't re, they don't reproduce like like you know you know like the like all other animals. Because of that, they don't. You're allowed to kill lice on Shabbat. That's the halacha. Of course, 
Oh, wait, 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 wait. wait. I'm talking about basic, you know, straight out, preemptive, premeditative murder on lice. You know, like, yeah, about, yeah. Anything that was, that we just asexual? So let's get to that. So, not necessarily. So, now we know that it's, it's well established, especially when you're dealing with lice, that they do reproduce sexually. They do reproduce that way. They do. If you go and you have to look through a magnifying glass, but you do know that they do reproduce the same way. So there is a universal... How do we understand this? This is the question. Be like, oh, you see the rabbis, by the rabbis never... You know, like, they go... You know, a lot of commentators go and say, oh, it's spontaneous generation, different things like that. You know, the Gemara doesn't mention spontaneous generation. There, you know, there's some commentators that do, do mention this, this idea of spontaneous uh, generation. Uh, but, but the idea, you know, through sweat, through certain other, you know, you know ideas, which we're not going to get to now. But what we see over here is a very, very obvious conflict with the Torah and the current science. We know that if you go on the magnifying class, you see that... Lice do produce that way. Now, granted, we don't know what lice they're referring to. Is it lice? Is it something else? Is it fleas? There's many different, you know, understanding of what kina is. But let's say that it's lice. We know that it's very, very, you know, very different than what contemporary knowledge tells us that they do produce. And we know that for a fact that they do produce the same way that anything else. So there is, there's something very important that we need to know with this. So if you read this Gemara straight out, you look like it's a very obvious contradiction. But if you know a little bit on, on the, the way the halacha works, is there's a universal accepted principle that Something that cannot see with the naked eye counts as if it does not, it does not exist. The halakha applies only to the visual world, not to the sub-visual world. Now let's uh, try to explain this. The, the Chachmas Adam goes and explains this. There was once a person that asked him regarding vinegar. Let's say wine turns into vinegar. According to this person, he says the wine turns into vinegar based on microscopic worms. And that's why, uh, now regardless of how it actually turns it, this is how the inquirer, the asker, asked the Chachmas Adam, said based on this idea, are we allowed to now go and drink this vinegar, use this vinegar, because it's based off of animals, microorganisms that are alive. The Chachmas Adam answered and says, the the Torah only deals with something that is visible. If it's not visible, you're not able, you, it's beyond us. And in fact, the Oral HaShulchan goes and says that if we would deal on the microscopic level, then water, air, there's so many microorganisms that are alive, that are in our ecosystems, that we wouldn't be able to do anything. If we would say what the eye cannot see is also forbidden, then we would not be able to move. You would have to stand. Every time you move, every time you do, every time you drink water, there's so many microorganisms that are in there that are alive that you're killing. Ah, oh, you're not allowed to drink on Shabbat. You have to fast on Shabbat. You can't do anything. So, there's a very, very obvious answer that the, the you know, the Aruch the, HaShulchan also brings down. The Torah was not given to angels. You're only responsible what is visible to the naked eye. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein used this idea to a different extent. There was once somebody that asked him, the tefillin, the batim, the, the squares of the tefillin have to be perfectly square. So they asked him, should we use a microscope to make sure that they're perfectly clear? Moshe Feinstein says, no need to. Says the Torah didn't tell us in a microscopic level. The Torah told us in the way that the naked eye, the naked eye sees it. The Torah was not given again to the angels. Something that it is impossible for human beings to go and to work. The Torah wasn't given. What are you going to say? Oh, now that we don't, now that we have a microscopic thing, that all the previous generations did it wrong. No, it wasn't meant to be like that from the beginning. And this is how Rab Dessler goes and explains. He says that. The, the Torah, the Chazal, what they ruled, they ruled based on what's you, what you could see on the unaided eye. Now we can understand the look at lice. Lice eggs are very small. They're very small and they need to be, they're, in order to see it, you have to see that they reproduce, how they reproduce. Even some say the microscopic issue is the relation to the eggs, to the parent. There's different, you know, halakha criteria dealing with this, which we're not going to get into over here. But something that's so small, you cannot, you know, the, the halakha doesn't apply to it. Because then, by doing this, you just probably killed some microorganisms. You can't do anything. You're not going to be able to do anything. The Torah says that, and it deals with specifically seeing the things that are dealt with the, with the aid and eye. You realize that, and this is my own, my own understanding of it, Chazal used lice, and again, I'm going to 
this is my own understanding of it. Chazal used lice as a sort of a barrier. Like, where do we know? Like, for example, let's say you have some sort of things in your hair. You don't know. Every time you scratch, you could be killing things. Are you allowed to scratch on Shabbat? So the Chazal used lice as a sort of a, a borderline. What's allowed and what's allowed? After a certain point, when you cannot see it, unless you're going under a microscope, you're not liable. It's not liable. Said the Chazal, what did Chazal say? It says they don't reproduce like they. What it means is that they don't see, there's no visual reproduction. It's too, it's beyond the visual eye. You're not liable for that. That's what the Chazal, that's what the Chazal is, re- is referring to at that, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in that particular. Make sense? Is that clear? Okay, good. There's something very interesting in the Gemara in Chulim. In page 20, 126b. There's something known as, there's a certain Akhbar. Akhbar Shechetziav Basav Vechetziav Adama. Very interesting mouse that the Gemara brings down, half dirt, half mouse. Which means is that the, the mouse is is on top of the ground, and part of it is in the ground, meaning that part of the, you could understand that part of the mouse is actually the ground. And the Gemara goes on to say the halachic ramifications, if you touch the mouse or if you touch the dirt, what do you consider tameh? And the Gemara goes there, and the Mishnah goes there and brings it down over there. The Now, According to contemporary wisdom, we know that no such mouse exists. Even though some people argue there's, there's a lot to speak about this, and it's getting late, so we're not going to delve into that much. The, but, but to understand this, the, the Gemara, when the Gemara brings down, the Gemara, by the way, never says that this exists. It never said, we saw this, and this is what happens in the The Gemara goes down, very clearly says, that if such a thing exists, this is what the halacha would be. You touch this part, you would be tameh. You touch this part, you don't be tameh, or you are tameh. That's what the halacha, the halacha doesn't say that, yeah, this exists. The, back in those days, it was a very common knowledge that this thing existed. And in fact, if you look at the old, you know, you know, the old, you know, scientific books, this existed. And, and there have, there's different, you know, uh, translations of, of what this is. Uh, I think it was called spring mouse or something in, in German. There was a different, there was a bunch of different, uh, you know, tra- that, that it was something that was common back then. But none of the sages say that they saw it. And in fact, the Rambam says, and Perosh Mishnah says that people came and they told him that they saw it. And he says, I have no explanation for it. So regardless of whether it existed, whether it doesn't exist, it doesn't matter. The Torah speaks about things all the time that are not applicable. What is the best example? Ben Sorah Morel. The Gemara brings down, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, page 71a, goes and brings down a case of Ben Sorah Morel, which is a case that is never going to happen. The Gemara says, It will never was and it never will be. It's a case of a wayward uh, child. A child that goes off and does certain things and certain criteria is what you ought to do, you have to do, you have to kill. You know, certain things that you have to do for guarding this child. The Gemara says it never was and never will be. So says the Gemara, so why are you telling me about this? To give reward to those that, you know, are going to go and, and learn it. But there's a very interesting caveat that we have to add to that. There's Gemara in Chagiga, page 15a. Uh, that says, and we have to speed up a little bit because it's getting a little bit late. The Gemara Haigah says that there was a, what, what's the story regarding a woman who conceived in a bathhouse? What happened was there was a man beforehand in the bathhouse and there was, you know, semen and the semen went and entered the woman. The woman conceived from that, that way. What happens to that child? Now when you think about it, what type of case is that? How is that ever going to happen? However, the Gemara goes and speaks about such a case and something very interesting. Centuries later, all of a sudden we have a thing called artificial insemination. Where a insemin- where 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 woman can be inseminated by something that's artificial that's not you know that not directly by a man. So the gemara, a lot of the information we take based off the rulings and the tradition we have based on this idea. So some things that we see that we think that has absolutely no reason, no cause, no background to the gemara it makes absolutely no sense. In later generations, all of a sudden we start using it and we start you know we start utilizing it. So we see over here that there's more there's more to it that meets the eye. There was a, um, one, one other point, what is this, a final point? Who knows? Yeah, something, almost like final point. 
So far, so clear? Okay. The, there's a very, very famous political commentator. Uh, I'm not going to mention his name. Who was one, uh, He's very, very famous in the secular world. He, um, he grew up religious. Um, off camera, I'll tell you what his name is. Um, he grew up religious, and uh, he... He, had he and he uh, later became not religious, and he's a very very smart man. And somebody actually sent this to me. Um, I don't recall who, but thank you whoever it did. So you know that's it's because of him that I'm I'm speaking regarding this topic. That uh, he no, I don't remember who it was. Okay, but thank you. So do I remember who it was? I don't know, it's going to bother me. Okay, but uh, regardless, it was, it was a very famous political uh, commentator that said he was religious and he, and he, and he stopped being religious. Now, and, I li- and he sent me some links, this guy, to, to regarding what, why he wasn't religious. Now, something he said very interesting. He says, he believes in God. He believes in the Torah. He believes, what, where he has a problem is rabbinic law. He says, but then you could ask him, he says, but he doesn't listen also to biblical law. And he says, that's because I'm lazy, I'm a sinner. He said that straight out. He says, I'm lazy and I'm a sinner. He knew straight out, and I, that's tremendous, you know, like, like, that's good. I mean, I mean, you go get it, it's very bad. But from the bad, it's more good than the worst bad. You know, like, it's, it's like, like, at least you know that you're doing something wrong. But you know what he mentions time and time again, and what the problems that he had with the rabbinical law? He says, Yom Tov Sheni. He says, what's Yom Tov Sheni? Yom Tov Sheni is where you have, in Israel, for example, Sukkot, the first days, is just one day. In anywhere outside Israel, it's two days. He says, "Why?" Yeah, Hamad. So the so so that's his problem. He says, "Look, the rabbis are making things up." So let's try to explain. Let's try to explain this idea, uh, you know, behind this, so we could, uh, you know, we can better explain to understand this. There, um, we know that Shabbat happens every seven days. Every seven days, regardless of whatever you do, Shabbat happens. It's going to happen at the same time at every, at, you know, every single day. Yom Tov, on the other hand, depends on Rosh Chodesh. It depends on when you have Rosh Chodesh. Now, who does Rosh Chodesh depend on? It depends on when you see the new moon. So the rabbis would go there, would sit in, you know, in, the, in the Sanhedrin. When people go and they witness the new moon, they would come and tell the rabbis. The rabbis would go then, and then they would judge. They'd say, okay, the, the, the Rosh Chodesh is either today or today. So a month could either be 29 or 30 days in the Jewish law. So depending on when the new moon came is when they, they, would, uh, um, they would say that this is, when the, the, this is when Rosh Chodesh starts. Now, if you could realize... If, is, if the new, moon, new month starts 29th or 30 day, it makes a big difference. Because when do you start Sukkot? When do you start Pesach? When do you start any holiday? Is it the 29th or the, uh, or the 30th? So you didn't know. So what happened was, so let's try to explain how this worked. What happened was is that the rabbis went and, uh, you know, the Sanhedrin was sitting over there. People came in and they testified that they saw the new moon. And the rabbis went and they, you know, they asked some questions and they said, okay, fine, you know what, you're right. That is when the new moon is. And what they did was is that they started lighting fires on rooftops. Uh, not rooftops, mountaintops, I'm sorry. And there were designated mountaintops that people knew when to stand up to see when there is a, when there's a fire. That means that Rosh Chodesh was decreed by the Bezin. That, there was no internet, there was no phone call, you can't do like a mass text, like, hey guys, Rosh Chodesh is today. Like, there was no, there was no, there was nothing like that. Rather, so that's how they got the information by putting fires on mountaintops. And there were designated mountaintops that people would go and they would look, they would see that, they would light their fires. And that's how the news would travel and say Rosh Chodesh is tonight. That's when it starts. The problem was that we had some, 
group of people known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans would go and they tried to disturb that. And they would light the, fly, the fires on the wrong days to try to mix up the Jewish people, mix up the Orthodox people and say, no, the Moshe Chodesh is on the wrong day. So the rabbis realized that they're not able to use the fire system anymore. So they had to use personal messenger systems. So they had to use, you know, like runners, like, like people on horses that go and travel. Now what happens to people that were traveling, that were, that were very far? It would take them days or weeks to get to it. Who knows how long it took? This is what people would travel for. They were going, they would travel on top people what time Rosh Chodesh was. But it could take them two, three weeks until they get to that, uh, to that location. Now what happens if, let's say, Rosh Chodesh comes out on a certain day? How do you know when Pesach? Pesach is 15 days. Let's say, let's say the 15th day of the month, mid, mid-month. So you're going over there. How do you know when to start? So you have a question. Is it the, if you realize there's two possible options of when, when Pesach or Sukkot could start, either if Rosh Chodesh was on the 29th or Rosh Chodesh was on the 30th. So what happened was for the people in the far out provinces, what they did was is that until the knowledge came to them, until the information came to them, they kept two days because they didn't know what was right and what was wrong. So they had to keep two days because they didn't know it was either the 29th or the 30th. So they had to keep two days. Make sense so far? Now the problem is, now we know. Ah, now we know. Right, so the, since the fifth, the, the fourth century common era, we have a fixed calendar. We know exactly when is Rosh, when is Rosh Chodesh. We know exactly when the holidays will be. So why is it that outside Israel do we still keep two days holidays and not one day like they do in Al Israel? So we realize we have high go and goes. And um, first of all, you know, he explains it. He says that this custom even could come from the days of the prophets, even from the days, you could say, perhaps even from the days of Yeshua Ben-Nun. And he says, Rabbi Haigon, now, I was always wondering if he just said it, or he really knew, but he didn't want to say it. He says, we don't know the real reason or the secret behind this enactment. And now we have an idea that the Torah, you know, like, the, the, we have to be careful of the customs of our forefathers. And right now, while we keep, you know, Yom Tov Sheni is a custom. It's a custom while we keep the, you know, the Yom Tov Sheni. But imagine this scenario to try to explain it. Imagine you go to the biggest Kabbalist alive today. Like, let, you know, even before, let's say you go to, you know, let's even use, use that as an example. You did something that um, you later realized you're becoming religious and you did something and you realized you didn't have to do it anymore. And you go over to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, listen, I know that there's a certain idea that you have to, you know, if you did something three times, should I do it? Should I not do it? Should I stop doing it? You ask him a question and, the rabbi, and you ask the rabbi, you know, should I continue it? You know, you know, or should I not continue it? The rabbi goes into, imagine he goes into a major trance, and he goes and he concentrates for a half hour. Now, I use Chachamavad Yosef as an example, because everyone knows that everything that he says, you know, like, it's legit, it came true, like, like, I have stories and stories, amazing, of what the, uh, you know, uh, of the level of righteousness that this, uh, that, you know, that this bag rabbi was. Imagine he's looking back and forth, he knew all Kabbalah, all of it, you know, he had, all, he had, he had plenty of information. Imagine after all that, a half hour he's thinking about this, he's in a trance. Then he opens his eyes, and he looks at you, and he starts telling you everything about your personality. Like, you know, it makes you want to sink in and disappear, right? Like, everything about you. He says, you're like this, you're like this, you're like this. And you're like, yeah, 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 check, 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 check. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. Um, and then the rabbi looks at you square in the eye and says, whatever you do, do not stop doing what you did. It is very important. You're like, look at me. Look at me. It's very important that you continue with this, that even though you don't have to do it anymore, it is very important that you continue it. Are you going to go and you're going to continue that? Oh yeah, you're going to continue that. Oh, you better believe you're going to continue that. You're going to go and you're not going to, you're, you're, not, you're not going to stop that for nothing. That's going to be more important than the Ten Commandments for you, unfortunately. You're going to go and you're going to make sure that you do that. Now when we're looking, when the rabbis told us, after the calendar came out, the rabbi says, just trust us. Keep on doing it. Just don't, 
There's a reason for this. Just keep on doing it. Now, we didn't know this for, you know, for quite some time. The Tzemach Tzedek brings down a very interesting explanation you know, for it. He goes and says, like this. It says, you know, like, when you have a light, right? If the light, when you're closer to the light, it's very bright and it shines in a very, very small circumference. But if, let's say, you take a light in a very large room, the further that you go, the less brighter that it gets, but it travels over a larger circumference, but it's less brighter. So I think we know the idea that Israel, you know, Yerushalayim, El Tzisrael, is the holiest place. And the, the concentration of holiness is over there. I have a lot to speak about this. So I'm not going to get it because it's very late, but there's a lot of holiness and you can feel it, you know, physically and, and spiritually in that area. He says, when you're dealing with, with the, the, the holidays, the holiday is not something you just commemorate. Be like, yeah, well, the, you know, they did this, so let's just do this also. It's more than that. There's a spiritual energy that happens in each and every single holiday that you have to tap into, that you have to capitalize, and that, that helps you go on to move on, you know, to, to, you know, brings you to the next holiday, and it, and it, and it, and it brings something different out of you each time. In Israel, the power is so strong in these holidays, you only need one day. Because the power is in there. But what happens when you're going outside of Israel? Outside of Israel, we know that the impurities are much stronger. You need two days to capture that power in that holiday outside Israel. Similar to the light. Closer you are, you're able to see the brightness much closer. But further away that you are, you need more to try to capture it. Now when the rabbi said, keep it two days, they knew what they were talking about. They weren't trying to make life more difficult than that we have to take two days off from work as opposed to one day of work. There's a reason behind it and there's a very, very, you know, you know, real reason behind it. And you could feel the difference behind it. You could, there, there is a reason you know, behind it. There's a lot to speak about. You move to Israel. You, don't, you know, there's a lot. You live in Israel. You, you, there's, a, there's a lot of different questions. We don't have the time to go into it. But that is the basic understanding behind it. There's something also very interesting, and we'll try to finish with this because it's getting very late. The, you know, we know that Israel had a major, uh, major victory. Right? Remember the sun? Remember. Yeah, remember last Wednesday, the sun stood up and didn't, it didn't set? Yeah, you guys are familiar with that, with that story, right? right? So the sun didn't set. So a lot of said, well, we would see this in contemporary history. How come we don't see it? So they asked that question until we started seeing it in contemporary history. We started seeing it. In fact, the Egyptians, not the Egyptians, the Mexicans, the Aztec lore in, uh, in, in Mexico, they said that, they, that this is also the same time range. Around 1400 BCE, the sun failed to rise for a whole day. And also north in, in Mexico City, they said that it, it failed to rise for 20 hours. No, it's not. The eclipse doesn't happen for 20 hours. Eclipse is very, very short. This is also written in the Inca legends. They have over here something very interesting. Israel is on one side. Mexico is not technically. So you'll, well, you'll see the opposite. If the, if the sun stands in, in the place in Israel, it's obviously not going to rise in the other part. So we do see all of a sudden, a lot of people had a lot of these questions on history, a lot of these questions on, on, the, on the Torah, on the, on, the, on the facts. How come we don't see it? And all of a sudden, things are coming up. We see this with the Egyptian history also. We said, ah, if, they, if the Jews were really in Egypt, how come we don't see any, any artifacts? All of a sudden, we see artifacts in there. All of them, we spoke about this in, archaeological, you know, in the archaeological class in the Divinity Series. We spoke about this, and we see that there is, all of a sudden... You know, they don't all of a sudden become believers. All of a sudden, they start asking different questions. All of a sudden, they look at something else. So which means is it really depends on where you're looking. But know for certain that everything that the Torah, you know, there's always, an, there's obviously some things that it's taken. We don't know until the Yahweh now becomes. But to know that the Torah is true, if you're open-minded, and if you're looking to it, there's no doubt in your mind that you realize that it is true. We're going to, Bezal Hashem, speak about more on this topic in a different angle. Bezal Hashem, next time, any questions thus far? What did you say, Eliyahu Hanavi? Teku, there's a certain questions that we don't know, like what exactly, that's, we, we wait till Leo now becomes to answer that, yeah. You know that? Any other questions? Yeah. Do they have documentation from when it didn't set in Christmas time? I don't know, this is what I exactly, I, this particularly I saw in the time of, uh, of Yeshua. Question, um, if, if a Jewish boy doesn't have a Brit Milan, is he still considered Jewish? Still considered Jewish, yes, but he still needs a Brit Milan.
He has to get one. No, but I'm saying like he just Jewish. doesn't. I don't know. Whatever. He's still Jewish. He's still Jewish. Oh, so he's still part of like the whole. Yeah, I mean, he definitely needs one. He definitely needs one. But he's still Jewish. Yeah. Can he be part of many? Yeah. yeah. You know what? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.